to the John Riley Project. This is episode 21, and it's the Poway 2018 election postgame show. And we're going to take a look at all the races, Poway mayoral race, the Poway city council races, and the Poway school board races. We're going to break it down. We're going to take a look at the numbers, the candidates. We're going to talk a lot about some of the broader themes and the things we learned in this election process and take a glimpse into the future with some of the races and some of the personalities that are involved. Um, But first, before we get started, I do want to say this. Uh, Today is Sunday. It's November 11th. This is Veterans Day. Um, This is the day that commemorates the end of World War I. In fact, this is the 100th anniversary of the end of World War I. So I just want to, you know, salute our veterans, um, you know, all across the country, you know, whether they're active or retired. Um, This is a shout out to the veterans and uh, to thank them for their service. But it's also, um, I just want to make a comment about the President of the United States. He's choosing not to participate with world leaders because of the weather. Um, And I was very disappointed to hear that. I would expect more from our president. Um, But let's really get back to Poway politics and take a look at the numbers and the broader themes. So here at Poway, what did we learn? We learned that it's damn hard to beat an incumbent. And really, this is something we've known for a very long time. Of course, it occurs at the national level, the statewide level, but it definitely occurs here at the local level. Incumbents, by their very nature, have an advantage. Incumbents are in the media. The incumbents are more well-known. Incumbents are often associated with you know projects that people like. In fact, in many cases, uh, uh, um, incumbents are looked upon as sort of distinguished people, people that have a certain sense of authority. And so generally, voters are going to be drawn to them. And then challengers, of course, are not as well known. They haven't been in the media. They don't have the name recognition. And so in in general, incumbents have an advantage. But here in Poway, it's even particularly more so. And let's look at the city of Poway specifically. Now, we could look at a lot of different parts of Poway and say, here's a problem, there's a problem. But generally speaking, the city of Poway is very well run, and it's been very well run for a long time. There is a consistent string of balanced budgets. Those balanced budgets go into reserves, and those reserves are deployed to prioritize projects. The city of Poway has the lowest crime rate of any city in San Diego County. Now, some will try to nitpick that and look at violent crime versus property crime, but even in some of those individual cases where Poway may not be number one, it's certainly either number two or number three. But overall crime rate, definitely Poway, the lowest crime rate in the county. So obviously that's a big part of the reason people live here and enjoy living here. So that's going to play into the hands of the incumbents. The city is generally well run. The roads are smooth. The roads are taken care of. Um, Budgets are balanced. So I think... The incumbents are going to have an advantage here because the city is so well run. And, 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 and this has been going on for a long time. I've lived in Poway since 1996. And the only times you really see an incumbent lose or an incumbent, let's say, not uh, 
I guess I should better say as a challenger win that seat is because sometimes the incumbents will resign, okay, so or retire might be a better way to put it. They step down. Um, in other cases, we've seen incumbents lose because there's been a scandal, you know, that might be related to them personally or to their time in office, or there might be a big, big problem. And we did see that with the school board in 2014 in the aftermath of the billion dollar bond. And, you know, two of those incumbents lost reelection. But these are the exceptions. Um, the, the general rule is, is that the incumbents will win. So in the city of Poway, they win because the city is so well run. Um, but in both the city council races and in the school board races, those incumbents also get tremendous backing from a lot of individuals and a lot of organizations. And that results in, um, a, in a treasure chest of funds that are being used in their reelection campaign. So let's take a look at um, you know, some of the institutional or establishment organizations that are backing these candidates. The Deputy Sheriff's Association is a, a group you would think would be a bunch of deputies that you know get together and pool their money and build a political action committee. And that's true to a degree. But if you look at the Dep Deputy Sheriff's Association, which, by the way, did a number of mailings for, for races throughout the county, including here in Poway, um, where they were propping up an incumbent, in this case, Kalen Frank, and the down, the backside of the mailer was a negative ad towards Tory Pine, Tory Powers, pardon me, Tory Powers, a challenger. Um, if you look at the Deputy Sheriff's Association financial contributions, because it is public, it's it, that's part of campaign finance law, you'll see that a lot of the money is coming from the building association, from construction uh, companies. And they're being put into the coffers of the Deputy Sheriff's Association, which in turn is supporting candidates, which is interesting and no surprise because, of course, the city of Poway is going through this Poway Road specific plan. The building industry getting into the good graces with the city council, since the city council will have to approve those construction projects, no surprise. Um, I'm not trying to make this necessarily political, but I, what I am saying is, is that the incumbents are getting big resources from not only individual donors, but also from institutional or establishment organizations. And it goes beyond that. You also see this with political parties. So the Republican Party was very active here in the city of Poway race. In fact, that same mailer that I'm speaking of that was put out by the Deputy Sheriff's Association in support of Kalen Frank also featured the, the photo and a quotation from Tony Kravarik, who is the San Diego County Republican Party president. Um, and so he was he and his organization spending money here in Poway to support the incumbent candidates. Um, but we also saw that in the school board. In fact, the city council and the school board, you know, the, the races you would think would not be partisan. Certainly when you go to the, the, voting, bo uh, the voting booth and you look at your ballot um, next to everyone's name, unlike when they're running for Senate or Congress, there is no R or D or L or G or any other political party next to each individual person's name on the ballot. So you would assume this is a nonpartisan race. But in reality, there is a lot of partisan politics that occurs behind the scenes that are supporting these, these figures. And in the case of the school board race, T.J. Zane, an incumbent, reelected the former executive chairman of the Republican Party, 
got the Republican Party endorsement and backing from the Republican Party. The same is true with Michelle O'Connor Radcliffe. She got endorsement from the San Diego Democratic Party. So you see a lot of these establishment organizations, in these cases, political parties backing these candidates. But it's also unions, and, and the unions play a much greater role with the school board race. Uh, because in the school district, of course, there's the Poway Federation of Teachers. This is the teachers union. And then there is the um, Poway School Employee Association, PSEA. Those organizations are putting money backing candidates. And where do they put the money? They backed um, TJ Zane the, um, uh, for his reelection, and they backed Michelle O'Connor Radcliffe in her reelection. In fact, the Poway Teachers Association spent a tremendous amount of money backing those candidates. Uh, and oh, by the way, in the other school board race, there was no incumbent. They happened to support Kevin Juza, but the incumbents did get great support. Now, a little bit of a tangent here. It's interesting to me that um, a candidate like TJ Zane, who is a former, as I said before, a former executive director of the Republican Party here in San Diego County, a former president of the Lincoln Club, which is a downtown uh political action committee that is uh, for business interests and largely supportive of Republican parties. Um, TJ Zane getting that support from, I guess you could say the conservative part of the, um, of the community, but he was also getting support from the unions, which is unusual. It's unusual to see that, especially when he was um, spending so much time and effort and energy tearing down the unions in the city of San Diego when he was running the Lincoln Club here in the city of Poway, or actually in the Poway School District, he was getting support from the unions. So it makes you sort of scratch your head. Um, in my opinion, I think we are going to see a lot more of TJ Zane. I think he's going to be working to move him himself up in politics, so keep your eye on him. Um, but uh, the, the point I'm really trying to make overall is that the incumbents get great financial support from institutional and establishment interests. Um, we also see financial support from individual donors. Now, um, in the city of Poway, there's a $100 limit. So that's all you can really write a check for. Um, and in the case of Mayor Voss, he had, I think, if I have to double check my records, but it was around $16,000 in individual donations, which was massively more than um, any of his competitors got. In fact, it was probably double um, the money that the other three can, uh, challengers had combined. So he had great financial support from individual donors. But again, keep in mind, these are voluntary donations. These are individuals that like Steve Voss. Um, Steve Voss is very popular. So it's really no surprise that he got a lot of the, that kind of money. But what's interesting is on the school board race, there is no $100 limit. Um, hypothetically, hypothetically, a wealthy individual donor could write a check for a million dollars and hand it off to a, um, a school board candidate campaign committee to help their efforts to win re-election or to, as a challenger, to win election. And so in the case of TJ Zane, we saw that he had financial contributions that were four-digit numbers. Remember, Poway limits it to $100. He had multiple donations for $2,500, one donation for $5,000. Um, and as an aside, a lot of these donations came from people that don't even live in the Poway Unified School District, which again, I think speaks to the fact that I think TJ is crafting for himself a political future. So, um, but the point being, 
big money supporting the incumbents. That gives the incumbents a strong advantage. Um, and we saw that um, with Republican candidates, with Democratic candidates here in the Poway Unified School races and in the city council races. Um, but let's take a look at the numbers because I think it's also interesting when you look at the numbers, a lot of times the challengers were fragmenting the anti-incumbency vote. Now, in the mayoral race, that wasn't the case. Steve Voss won in a landslide. 63% of the people voted for Mayor Voss. No surprise, very popular person, um, very well-known. Um, Steve Voss, in his day job, you know, he understands marketing and promotions. Um, he is uh, a very well, a gifted um, public speaker. He is um, a person that has uh, a good understanding of the messaging to deliver as a, as a mayor, mayoral candidate and as a standing mayor. That's why you hear him speak frequently about um, uh, public safety, balanced budgets, quality of roads, um, major um, infrastructure improvements. Those are the things that voters generally care about. So Steve, to his credit, hammers on those particular points and makes those a priority in his um, uh in his duties as mayor, but also a priority in the messaging that he sends out during his reelection campaign. And, and oh, by the way, he understands branding probably better than any candidate in a 30 mile radius of where we are. I mean, he's after all the man in a cowboy hat. And I think that plays to his advantage. It makes him very, very well known. So he won in a landslide. Um, will we, what are we going to see in the future of these other candidates? I'm not sure. Um, I, I love the story behind Emily Johnson, um, a person that you know, when she was 18, she met with Mayor Voss in her civics class at Poway High. And, um, you know, she spoke uh, out on a variety of issues that Mayor Voss didn't believe were the role of local government, but he encouraged her to run for office. And two years later, she did. And I, I that story has been played out in the local media. Uh, there's been a number of interviews on some of the television stations with Emily Johnson. So, Emily, if you're listening, I hope we haven't seen the last of you. I hope that we'll see you run again or become more of a public figure because I think you have a message and you have something to say. But I thought that was a wonderful story. Um, let's look at District 1. And I think this is where we see the fragmentation of the challenger vote play a much greater role. Now, Dave Grush won re-election. Uh, you know, Dave, no surprise that he won. I mean, he's very well liked. He's extremely approachable, probably of any candidate running across any of the races that we're discussing today, he's the guy that is most likely to sit down with you over a cup of coffee, that will take your phone call, that will lend an ear, um, and is always warm and, and open, and will will have that personal relationship with each individual voter. So I give him great credit for that. Um, he won, but with only 50.56% of the vote. That means that he barely got more than half. Now, of course, in this race, you don't need to have a majority. It's just the most votes wins. But the point is, is that the three challengers barely came short of 50% combined. So John Ryan, 25%, Pete Neald, 17%, John Carson, 7%. Now, imagine, if you will, those candidates were organized and decided instead to back a single person. And if they did, that single individual challenger might have had a chance to beat Dave Grush. Uh, didn't turn out that way. So um, again, the incumbents have an advantage. And when the challengers aren't organized, it makes it even easier for the incumbents to continue on to victory. Um, let's look at District 3. 
Now, I live in District 3, and John Mullen won this going away, 65%, Joe Calabrese, 35%. Really, John was an extremely active uh, campaigner. He was out on the street knocking on doors. He was sort of tag-teaming with the rest of the city council, with Mayor Voss, Dave Grush, Kalen Frank, and Barry Leonard. They were out there as a group knocking on doors, and you know, to their credit. Uh, so they were uh, very active campaigners. John Mullen did a sit-down conversation with me here on the John Riley Project. Um, I invited Joe Calabrese. We played a little bit of telephone tag. We just never could, we could never really connect. Meanwhile, Joe Calabrese was not at any of the candidate forums, so I often wondered how serious of a candidate he was. Um, would have loved to have him here and had a conversation. But I will say this, that my conversation with John Mullen was extraordinary. And of all the candidates that I interviewed for the mayor race, the city council races, and for school board, in my opinion, I thought that John Mullen's perspective on local politics was the most aligned with me personally. Um, He often said that he thinks local government should be run like a business. And that really resonates with me. Now, obviously, it doesn't mean, you know, profits and shareholders and and that sort of thing. But what it does mean is that a business should be um, uh, strategically planned. There should be a mission. There should be clear goals and strategies to meet those goals. A, a city should have strong fiscal controls, strong financial controls, should be saving money for a rainy day, should be deploying reserves for a prioritized list of projects so that decisions are made rationally, not really for politically motivated reasons. And I think I think the city of Poway is largely doing that. When you look at the stack ranking of um, projects that money is being deployed on, you know, right now we're, they're already doing the Espola underground um, power lines and widening that, that walk path from Twin Peaks up to the high school. Um, that's something that's been discussed forever, and they're actually deploying resources to get that done. There's also money set aside for the uh, community center, um, and, and that's terrific. And, and again, a little bit of a tangent here. Imagine that they're, they're saving money to be deployed for a project rather than like the school board going out and doing billion dollar bonds uh, to, to raise money. This city government here in Poway, much more fiscally prudent, is actually saving the money um, and then being very careful on how that's being spent. So um, the other thing with running city as a government, I'm not sure if John Mullen said this in his podcast, but at least I'll speak for myself. What that means to me is, is that the city treats its constituents like customers, you know, that they are there to serve the needs of the constituents and that um, they are about fulfilling those needs, you know, within the parameters of the of the functions of government. So um, in a lot of cases, I know government employees don't necessarily see their constituents as customers. In some cases, you often wonder if they see them as a nuisance. Um, but I think the the perspective of of government considering their constituents like customers makes sense to me. I mean, after all, they're the ones paying the bill, right? They're the ones that are paying the taxes. So um, John Mullen, um, I was pleased, very pleased that he won, I mean, 65 to 35. I mean, that's like a two to one ratio. He won going away. Now, the short-term race, this is another one of the more interesting races. Now, I've already alluded to a little bit of it. Um, this is the race that involved Kalen Frank, Tory Powers, and um, uh, Tony Russo. And 
in this particular race, I mentioned you know, the Deputy Sheriff's Association was involved, et cetera. But this was Jim Cunningham's previous seat. You know, Jim Cunningham was reelected two years ago. Um, and then, you know, early on in 2018, he decided that he was going to retire. He stepped down. And then the city council decided to appoint someone in June of 2018 to serve out the remainder of that term. And then in November, there would be an election. And that election would be for two years, which would be the, the conclusion of Jim Cunningham's term. And so since it was a two-year term, they called it short term. And it was also often referred to as the at-large position because it wasn't, we're, you know, we're in this transition from every race being citywide to this district process. And as part of this transition, this short-term position was an at-large, meaning the entire city could vote on it. So... The fascinating part of this race was the fact that Kalen Frank um, was an, uh, the person that got the appointment from city council. And she, by the way, won, won um, re- reasonably, uh, um, she won by a, a decent margin, let's put it that way. So she won 50.15% of the vote. So barely above half. Uh, Tory Powers, 37%. Tony Russo, 13%. So a number of conclusions here. Um, number one is the, the the challenger vote was fragmented. So imagine if Tony Russo and and uh, Tory Powers had gotten together and aligned behind a single candidate. And I'm saying that hypothetically. That never would have happened if you know those two individuals. I mean, Tony Russo um, was in this race for his reasons, Tory for her own reasons. Those reasons were different. Um, I know Tony considers himself a Republican. Tory, I believe, considers herself a Democrat. So the likelihood of them aligning, the likelihood of um, their voters aligning, pretty slim. But if you just look at the numbers only, if hypothetically they did align, it's very possible that those two individuals could have um, uh, could have ousted Kalen Frank from that from that position. So. Um, Again, challengers, not organized. But there's a lot of other stories related to this race. Now, the big one is is the fact that Kaylin Frank received the appointment in June. And that was a surprising move by the city council. And I know Mayor Voss was was largely supportive of this process. I mean, after all, he, you know, Kaylin Frank, if you look at the at the race, Kalen Frank and Steve Voss, in many cases, were like a tag team in the in the election process. You saw their supporters carrying each other's signs, et cetera. So obviously, Steve Voss, supportive of Kalen Frank, appointed Kalen Frank with the help of the rest of the city council. I was shocked when Kalen Frank got that appointment. I, I was looking in the news, and you, you, there's a whole list of candidate of people that put their name forward that you kind of figured you were going to see on that list, but then. When Kayla Frank got the appointment, I was like, who? Who is she? And so I had to learn more about her. And I think as we learn more about her, you know, she extremely well qualified. I mean, she works for Supervisor Jim Horn. She understands local politics. She understands the bureaucracy of city and county politics and how to navigate that, how to acquire and deploy resources. She knows what buttons to push since she's connected to so many people. I mean, after all, her, her mother was the former mayor of Encinitas. Both of her parents served as sheriffs. Um, so she's a very, I guess, well-connected person, a person who with local government has always been in the drinking water where she grew up. Um, so, you know, she was a, a candidate that was on paper. You could say, yeah, 
looks like a very well-qualified person. And oh, by the way, she's female, since the city council previously was all male. Oh, by the way, she's young. And oh, by the way, she lives in South Poway. And so you're thinking, hey, checkbox, 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 um, if those are your motivating factors. Um, but uh, still, I was like, who? Who is she? Because she had only lived in Poway for three months. And you say to yourself, okay, I know she's qualified, but how can you be a representative of the people if you don't know the people? And so this was an area where, you know, I, you know, I've been generally supportive of Mayor Voss and, and the efforts that he's put forward. And, and I'll talk even a little more about that. But this is an area where the mayor and I have a disagreement. Um, I wouldn't have appointed Kaylin Frank. I would have chosen someone, you know, probably like Pete Babich or someone like that, that said, hey, I'll only run for, you know, the three month term. And then uh, we'll let someone else run for re-election. That felt like the right thing to do. Um, or, you know, maybe even to leave that position open until November. I mean, because it was an at-large position. It wasn't like, you know, a certain constituency wasn't being represented. So um, I was surprised by that. But the other part of it is, is that we all know that incumbents have advantages. The incumbent is the anointed one, the one that um, has been selected previously, either by the electorate or in this case was appointed by the city council. So you knew whoever was appointed to that position and only served for three or four months was going to have an advantage in the November election. And that proved to be true. So um, Kalen Frank won this. I will say this, that I thought Tory Powers won a really good campaign. Um, you know, in many ways, Tory is sort of representative of the struggle of the South Poway constituents. Um, and, you know, she ran in 2016 um, and, uh, you know, did her due diligence. I know she served on the Poway Budget Review Committee, you know, bravo to her and had a lot of support, you know, not just in South Poway, but throughout the city. Um, but it wasn't enough. Um, I'll say this to you, Tori. I wish you would have done a podcast interview with me on the John Riley Project. That would have been fun. I would have gotten a chance to get to know you a little bit better. Um, Tony Russo ran in a, a rate in this race as well, and I, I don't know about you, but I loved following Tony Russo on Facebook during this election process. He um, kind of wore it all on his sleeve, and it was sharing the good, the bad, and the ugly of his campaign. You know. Tony has lived in this city for like 40 years. And so he knows a lot of people. He went to Poway High. He um, used to own O'Harley's, which was a uh, very popular, you know, restaurant, bar, sports bar down by the Walmart Center. So um, very interesting guy. And he was doing these Facebook live streams um, on Facebook and just laying it all out and just sharing it. And it was fun and interesting. And I, you know, I know Tony has a checkered past and, and people have brought that up, but I'm just kind of just talking about these Facebook lives. And um, it was interesting. It was like watching a reality TV show, just following him around town. And, and it was also interesting because Tony was also kind of um, video bombing a lot of these other I guess, Poway groups that aren't necessarily political. Um, and so people are all up in arms, you know, get this politics stuff off of our, you know, Poway group that's reliving the memories of the 1970s and 1980s. So um, it was just, it was just wild just to follow that process. And I knew he was going to get quite a bit of votes. And he got 13%, which is, you know, in, a, in, a, in an at-large, you know, citywide election, that's a lot of votes. So again, imagine if the, challengers were aligned, good chance that Kaylin Frank didn't win re-election, but she did win. So now I have to say is, I mean, you have to say, okay, now she's legit. 
Okay, we can say the incumbents have an advantage. I understand that. But she legitimately won in a Democratic vote. So now we turn the page and move forward. And let's just, uh, you know, let's hold all of our elected politicians, hold their feet to the fire to make sure that they continue to represent the needs of the people of Poway. So again, all my comments here, none of it's personal towards Kaylin Frank. My, I had a podcast with her. She's a lovely lady, you know, new mom, just recently married. And I think her husband follows me on, on Twitter. We talk sports and that sort of thing. She's a wonderful person, a wonderful mom, very highly qualified. My comments are not about her personally, just about the length of time that she has lived in Poway. But she's legit now. She's been democratically elected. So bravo to Kaylin Frank and congratulations to her. Um, now let's look at the school board races. And, and these were interesting ones as well. Um, we'll start, we'll go in alphabetic order. We'll talk about area B. Um, this was the one, The again, remember the city of Poway had to carve up into districts. The city, the Poway city, uh, excuse me, the Poway school board also had to carve up districts, which by the way, was a, a dramatic piece of controversy in and of itself. Now, the city of Poway, when they drew up their election boundaries, I mean, we could argue about some of those boundaries, but they weren't outrageous. The school board races, they were outrageous, okay? Now, um, if you look right now, the school board has five people on it. Well, this, I'm, I'm speaking, imagine it's before the election. There are five people on it. Four of those people live in a one-mile radius of each other. That's amazing, really. The, the Poway Unified School District is 10 miles by 10 miles. That's 100 square miles. But if you were to take a, put a dot on a map in Penasquitos and take a one-mile radius and draw a one-mile radius around that dot on the map, you would have four of those five elected um, school board members inside that circle. So one mile radius, 100 square miles, four of them are in that one mile radius. And they carved up that one mile radius into three different districts to protect the incumbents. And I'm going to speak to those races in a minute. In the Poway, the one race, the one, actually the one uh, district or area they, they carved up that didn't have an incumbent was area B. And this is mostly Poway. It's kind of the northern and the central area of Poway, and then a little bit of kind of northeastern Rancho Bernardo. And this race, Ginger Couvret won handily, 44%. Kevin Juza came in at 35%, and Kim Garnier at 21%. This was a fascinating race, like a lot of the other city council races. For Let's talk about Ginger for a moment. Ginger is an extraordinarily well-networked person. She is also extraordinarily well-liked. And in fact, I don't know a single person has a negative thing to say about Ginger. So the fact that she won is really no surprise. Um, I, when she entered the race, and I mentioned this to her in the podcast that we did, when she entered this race and she entered late, it was like a sonic boom going off because it changed the landscape of the race dramatically. Um, and when she entered it, I figured, okay, she's got a great chance to win. And it turned out that she did. Um, Ginger, you know, had a, been a, uh, an active volunteer in a long list of youth sports activities. I know she was president of the Poway Sports Association, you know, that manages a lot of the fields around town. She was very involved with uh, Poway youth soccer. Um, I know that she had done a lot of work with, um, you know, Poway um, track and cross country. And I'm leaving off a million other things that she was very involved in. 
Um, she was a teacher. She actually taught in high school. Um, she's a local business person. Um, so extremely well-liked, um, served on the Poway Budget Review Committee, which is terrific, um, and very well-connected. In fact, you know, she's very connected with a lot of the members of the city council. So she has that sort of bridge effect between the school board and the city council, which I think can play to her advantage. So she won pretty handily, no surprise. But I knew that the other two candidates in this race, they all had something going for them. Um, and I was always wondering how much do they have going for them and would it be enough? Now, Kevin Juza came in second place. Um, Kevin um, uh, was the one candidate in this race that didn't do the podcast interview with me. And Kevin, sorry you didn't have a chance to come on. You were invited. We re I reached out to you a number of times. Um, and you are welcome to come back. Maybe we can do a kind of a, a, your election campaign process and we can take a look back and, and, and discuss uh, the adventures of your previous campaign. But um, I thought, Kevin, I thought you ran a good campaign. I saw you out there at Poway High with your supporters at some of the Friday night football games. I mean, obviously you were the chosen one for the teachers union. I think that was pretty obvious. Um, and I didn't know anything about you. In fact, I think a lot of people didn't know about you until you were um, you know, a candidate for this race, and you ran a solid campaign. So we saw your, your mailers, we saw your signs around town, you were at all the candidate forums, you spoke very well. Um, you had the teachers union endorsement, and, and it's interesting because, um, f full respect to you, Kevin, um, I think you ran a great race, but I think, I wonder if Ginger had entered the race earlier, which she had been the candidate that got the teachers union endorsement. It seemed to me that the teachers union had sort of uh, I guess, selected or been aligned with Kevin very early on. Um, and so when it came time to do the interview process, I'm assuming that it was something of a formality. Uh, Ginger Couvret knows a tremendous number of teachers and she was a former teacher herself. So my hunch is, is that, is that if, if um, Ginger had chosen to be a candidate earlier on in the process, she probably would have won that endorsement. But Still, Kevin, I thought you ran a great campaign. Um, and uh, I mean, you were constantly in my Facebook news feed um, with your videos, with your endorsers, uh, people backing you. We got a chance to see your, your, your family and your daughters. And it's a great story. So I, I was interested to learn if the, the support of the teachers union would be enough to, um, to win in a race over someone who, in my opinion, is extremely popular. You came close. Um, in fact, you were probably the, uh, the, uh, the other uh, races, the teacher union endorsed candidate one, yours was the one exception. The third person in this race, again, this was a very intriguing race, was Kim Garnier. And uh, Kim Garnier, uh, you know, a lot of times you think of Kim, you also think of her husband, Chris. Um, they are very outspoken um, education advocates here in the community and kind of a lightning rod to a degree because there are a lot of people that really, really support the Garnier family. And there are a lot of people that really, really don't support the Garnier family. And they've chosen to be extremely outspoken on school board related issues. Um, and whenever you're extremely outspoken and opinionated, you know, you're obviously going to have um, fans and detractors. And that's what happened here. So I often wondered if the upside of the Garnier name was more than the downside, or, or was it vice versa? And I think the results show the end result. But I do say this, is I think that Kim Garnier and her husband, Chris, being very outspoken, and we can talk about a lot of those issues. In fact, 
Kim Garnier did speak about that in the podcast interview she had with me. I will say this, that, that John Collins, the former superintendent of Poway Unified, who was ousted for criminal um, charges for effectively stealing money from children, I think the Garnier family played a role in the ousting of John Collins. And I think that's some of the good things that the Garnier family did. Um, but was that enough to win in this election? No. I mean, I honestly thought that Kim Garnier might have a chance here, you know, if it's just her and Juza, maybe. Um, but once Ginger entered the race, I mean, it was game over. And that's what the numbers showed. Okay, let's look at Poway Unified School District Area C, another one with intriguing drama. Now, uh, TJ Zane won this race. TJ, 49%. Terry Norwood, 34%. Charles Sellers, 17%. So, um, God, there's so many different parts to this. I've already spoken earlier about how uh, big money and um, establishment institutional forces were backing Zane. In fact, a lot of it from outside the school district boundaries because of Zane. And I think he's got a political future ahead of him. Some people have rumored that he may be running for the city of San Diego City Council in 2020. Maybe. We'll see. Um, but on the surface, you can look at this. And you can say he only got 49% of the vote. So Norwood, 34%. Charles Sellers, 17%. Now, let me also back up a minute and say this is a really unique race because of all the races here in our community – and perhaps this is a unique race, maybe in the county, the state, maybe even nationally, because there were two incumbents that were running against each other, which is amazing. I mean, how often does that happen? And it's happened because of the way they had to draw the maps for this particular race. And if you go back, remember I, I said earlier that you know they they had a um, they had four of the five. Poway School Board candidates lived in a one-mile radius. They carved up that one-mile radius into three districts. So what happened is, is that Michelle O'Connor Radcliffe, uh, we'll speak about her in a minute, she had her own district pretty much, you know, sort of protected for her, where she didn't have to run against an incumbent. Then um, we had Darsh Patel um, also has a district kind of carved out where she she doesn't have an incumbent to run against. And then TJ Zane carved out a district in Rancho Bernardo um, that was um, 40, uh, that, excuse me, that was 11% in the positive column for the Republicans. So it was a Republican-leaning district. Remember, he's the former executive chairman of the Republican Party. So the, the district lines were heavily gerrymandered. And in this case, they were gerrymandered to TJ Zane's favor. And so you might say, well, okay, if the district was... Republican plus 11%, but he only got 49% of the vote. Why is that? Well, there's a lot of controversy following TJ Zane. And one person that has been extremely outspoken is Gabby Dow. Uh, Gabby, also a, a guest here on the John Riley Project. And she went through the list in, in, um, uh, in, in the podcast interview, but that's nothing compared to what she's been saying on Facebook. Um, some extremely negative commentary about TJ Zane. I invite you to go visit Gabby Dow's Facebook page if you want to get into the detail. But um, I think that's part of the reason why TJ Zane didn't quite get over the, the majority is because of a lot of that negative campaigning. But it wasn't enough. I mean, I think we all knew that TJ was the likely winner of this race. Everything kind of stacked up in his favor. So Terry Norwood came in second place with 34% of the vote. Charles Sellers, the other incumbent, was 17%. So look at the two of them. Sellers and Norwood had 51% of the vote. Imagine if they were aligned. And, you know, they used to be aligned. In 2016, 
you know, this is in the middle of Sellers' uh, term. You know, Sellers was elected in 2014, and now this is his re-election effort. In 2016, Sellers was not a candidate, but Terry Norwood ran for school board. Terry Norwood earned the Democratic Party nomination, and Charles Sellers was supportive of her candidacy. So they were aligned in 2016. And then 2018 rolled around, and you thought, well, maybe Terry would support Charles this time. And, um, you know, since this was Charles' run for re-election, and for a, a variety of reasons, I and mean, she went through it in the podcast, um, she chose to run her own separate campaign. And the minute that happened, you knew that was going to split the vote. It was going to split the Democratic vote. It was going to split the anti-incumbency vote. And that was just going to play into the hands of Zane, who ended up winning this um, pretty handily. So um, we saw that happen. But, you know, Ch Terry, I thought, ran a good campaign. Um, it was solid, but just lacked that electricity. Um, and and Charles Sellers, you know, he, he ran for re-election, but you know, he, he just wasn't a strong campaigner. And um, he had, uh, you know, Charles Sellers, a CPA, an accountant, um, when he was looking at the numbers in the Poway budget, he voted against the raise for the, uh, for the teachers union and for the school employees association union. Uh, and he did that because he knew that voting against that, voting for the raise would have put the school district into a deficit, which is what it's in. Uh, but as an accountant, he said this wasn't fiscally prudent. But by doing so... He was he was now deemed anti-labor and as a, you know, and he'll even admit he's kind of a Bernie Sanders style Democrat. Um, he was branded as anti-labor, didn't get the the uh, the Democratic Party nomination, um, didn't win. the Of course, he didn't win the teachers union endorsement or the school employee union endorsement um, and um, didn't get the Democratic Party endorsement that went to, to Sellers. So I'm sorry, that went to Norwood. So in many cases, Sellers was the outsider running in his own um, re-election campaign. And uh, and Charles, you know, bless his heart, he's a good guy, but, you know, he just didn't have enough um, resources, enough energy, and, and there just wasn't enough there to overcome this particular race. So, um, you know, it'd be interesting to see what the future is for all of these candidates. Are we going to see Norwood again or Sellers again? I don't know. Um, what's the future for TJ Zane? I think that's a very open question. So um, keep your eye on that race. And then finally, um, in Area D for Poway Unified School Board, we saw um, uh, Michelle O'Connor Radcliffe with 64% of the vote, Stan Rodkin, 36%. This was really no contest. Um, Michelle ran away with this easily. Um, now, one of the interesting things that's occurring with these um, uh, the aftermath of this election is, th as I said, the the challengers, their their votes were fragmented. And so now um, uh, an organization has started up in Poway led by John Ryan. John was the second place finisher in District 1. Um, and he has now started PowayFirst.com. So imagine, you know, President Trump is America first. Well, John Ryan's putting forth Poway first. And what this is meant to be is a um, essentially a, an organization that's going to align the anti-incumbent vote. So maybe there's only one anti-incumbent that chooses to run. Perhaps it's going to be a political action committee that could be a fundraising organization to back certain candidates. So what we're seeing here is a organization of the kind of loyal opposition to the city council. So um, let's see how this goes. Will it have the legs to last? I don't know. I mean, we've seen this, some iteration of this multiple times in the past. I mean, we've got Today, there's South Poway Votes, which is 
the essentially a Facebook page started by Chris Cruz to sort of discuss topics and do with some organization. Um, but before that, there was the South Poway Residents Association that you know kind of had a presence in some of the elections. Their candidates weren't successful. Will it be enough? I don't know. And I think one really interesting litmus test will be um, the analysis of this 2018 election. Now, in the open race, you know, Kalen Frank won that, Tory uh, Powers second place. Tory Powers, as I said earlier, is the um, kind of symbolic of the struggle of the South Poway voter. So in 2020, that open race, uh, that open seat, short-term seat is going to probably become the District 4 seat. And then District 4 is pretty much everything south of Poway Road, which is South Poway. So I would imagine that the the Tory Powers kind of group is going to be really analyzing the results precinct by precinct south of Poway Road to see if in a hypothetical 2020 race, did Tory Powers had enough um, uh, votes to win that hypothetical, you know, District 4 race using the 2018 votes. I don't know the answer to that. My hunch is, is that if the answer was yes, if the answer was yes, Tory Powers could have won that hypothetical race of District 4 based off the 2018 vote south of Poway Road, precinct by precinct. If that were the case, we probably would have heard that by now. But so far, we haven't heard anything. So either you know the data hasn't been compiled or the data showed that she didn't have enough. So again, I, I don't know. The, 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 it's interesting as I used to live in South Poway. In fact, my family lived for 11 years in Sycamore Creek, way on the very, very end of Garden Road. Um, and we've lived for the last 11 years now here in Green Valley. And so I've always been sort of sympathetic to the cause of the South Poway um, um, you know, struggle, if you want to call it that. Um, but I've often wondered, you know, is there enough juice to actually make a difference, um, to actually um, gain that representation? Well, they're going to, they technically have that representation now. Kalen Frank lives in South Poway. We can challenge that notion. In 2020, there will definitely be a legitimate District 4 person. I mean, by that point, if Kalen reruns, you know, she had been a person that's lived in Poway for over two, over two years. But I think we'll definitely have that South Poway representation, but will it be the same ideological, philosophical perspective of a lot of the South Poway folks who generally seem to be more on the left side of the political spectrum? Will we see that? I don't know. My instinct says no. My instinct says it's not going to be enough. The city of Poway is, you know, roughly speaking, about half Republican or conservative, half, uh, one quarter Democratic or liberal, if you want to call it that, and about one quarter independent. I mean, we can take a closer look at the numbers. It's not exactly that, but it's close to that. So um, are we ever going to see a case where the, the, the South Poway group, which is typically more progressive, more liberal, certainly geographically in the South Pow part of Poway. Will those interests ever align and have a successful candidate on the city council? I don't know. But I think if they are successful, it's going to be a tall mountain to climb. And we'll see if they're able to pull it off in 2020. Again, it's intriguing. I enjoy following it. Okay, what else? I'm blabbing here. We're like, oh my goodness, 49 minutes into this. I still have a few more things to say. So what are some of the other themes in this election? Well, first of all, I think we can say in the city of Poway, um, you know, people generally think we're on the right track, right? You know, they like the status quo. They like the safety, the roads, the budget. But the Poway Road specific plan, let's talk about this. This was the number one issue 
in the campaign for the incumbents and the challengers, you know, especially when we're talking about new things. Uh, Pete Neald, who ran in District 1, he's a scientist. He actually spoke to 1,200 people. He gathered data. He plotted points on a map. And it was overwhelming that this was the number one issue. And the question has always been, they're going to develop Poway Road. They're going to put in um, residential and commercial space. The question has always been, how much? How fast? How big? How tall? And, you know, is it slow growth? Is it fast growth? Is it outrageous growth? What is it? Um, and, you know, generally speaking, you know, people said we want slow growth. And of course, they're going to say that. I mean, people are generally adverse to change. They're more generally cautious. So um, it makes sense that they're going to be uh, for slow growth. Um, but I want to just put myself out on the record as I'm a big, big supporter of the Poway Road specific plan. And I'm, I'm a supporter of it for a number of reasons. Number one is, is that I'm a, you know, I've talked about this. I'm a big individual rights guy. I'm a big free market guy. So I'm big on property rights. I've always been a believer that if you own the property, you should be able to build what you want on your property. I mean, provided that you aren't damaging the property of people around you. So um, there have been, you know, strict limits to development here in Poway, and our founding fathers kind of put that into place originally um, in our uh, founding documents, and it was reinforced in 1988 by Prop FF. But the, the Poway Road was always kind of separate from that to a degree. Um, you know, ever since I've lived here since 1996, they've been talking about re redeveloping Poway Road. You know, they're finally doing it. But I've always been an advocate that a person that owns the property should be able to develop on it. Um, and I believe that is a general rule. Now, now some people will say, oh, my God, you know, someone could put a nuclear power plant, you know, at the at the site of the taco shop on, on Poway Road. Well, obviously, that's never going to happen. But even today, with the, the, the way the rules are set up, the city council can set boundaries. So something so utterly outrageous would never get approved. And, you know, depending on your definition of outrageous, there was already a housing development that was proposed for the site where the thrift store mall, I think it's called the Carriage Shopping Center and the Poway uh, Bowling Alley. The owner of that property or owners of that property were considering selling. The, the potential buyer had made a bid to the city of Poway to build a tremendous amount of apartments and condominiums, and it was shot down because there wasn't enough commercial um, use. And I think it might have even been too much residential. I'm not sure of the exact reasons, but... I'm a supporter of property rights, but I also acknowledge and I understand that the city ha can put some boundaries around it. So I'm generally, you know, approving of people wanting to develop their own property. Now, I'll, I'll even say this for the record, this, uh, you know, Stone Ridge development that occurred, um, or at least it was on the ballot a, a year ago, in November of 2017, I think that was Prop A, right? And that proposition was whether or not to change the zoning law to allow um, residential development at the Stone Ridge Country Club. You know, it's a golf course. I voted for that. I was in the minority. My side lost. But I was for it mostly because I'm supportive of property rights. And I know a lot of people didn't like the owner and he had, you know, some underhanded tactics he did in Escondido with the property he owned there to try to sway voters. But in the end, I think letting a, vote, a, a, a property owner develop on their own property should be their right. 
And that's how I'm aligned. So that's why part of the reason why I'm supportive of this Poway Road specific plan is to allow these property owners to develop. But I'm also supportive of new amenities in uh, Poway, um, more services for you know restaurants and more commercial businesses. But I think there's going to be a sense of economic development here in Poway. Um, so you know you're going to see you know businesses thrive. I think you're going to have more people in Poway. That's going to be better for business. Um, you know, some people have said that the motivation of the city council in doing this development is to generate more sales tax and property tax revenue. You know, that may be their motivation. That's not my motivation at all. Um, but I am happy that there's opportunities for business and economic development as a result of this. But another big, big issue, and this, um, this, this speaks not just to Poway, but to the San Diego County and even at the state of California level, is this housing crisis. There is a lack of housing, a lack of a housing that is affordable. Now, what's happening, I mean, let's look around. You talk, look at people here in San Diego in general, how many people are from somewhere else? I mean, so many, you know, not even just from out of San Diego, but out of California that have come here. So there is tremendous, tremendous demand for housing in California, in San Diego County, even here in Poway. I mean, people want to move here because of the, the public safety and, and the quality of education and a number of other things. Um, there's huge demand for housing, but government tends to restrict growth of housing. They have zoning laws, regulations, you know, permitting processes that make it very difficult and very expensive. So that keeps the supply of housing really low. And what does that do? This is, you know, Econ 101, when demand is high and supply is low, we get high prices. We get high real estate prices. We get high rental prices. That's creating the housing crisis in the county of San Diego and in the state of California. In my opinion, that makes the rich richer and the poor poor. That's why we have more and more homelessness, even in spite of a great economy, is because there's a lack of I'm not going to say affordable housing, which is, you know, government's taxpayer subsidized housing, but certainly a lack of housing that is affordable. So I'm a big supporter of more development of housing for this reason. And I'm against this notion of nimbyism, you know, nimby meaning not in my backyard. Nimbyism is prevalent, certainly here in Poway. We saw it with the Stone Ridge development. You know, people are saying, yeah, I'm for development, but not here, not next door, not in my city, develop somewhere else. And what those people do that are NIMBY supporters is they use government as their tool to you know, coerce others and prevent them from development. And so that notion of using, I guess, the, the, the force or the strong arm of government to prevent development, that creates all these distortions and anomalies in the marketplace. And that's why housing is so expensive. That's why rental prices are so expensive. That's why there's a great deal of tremendous wealth and of tremendous poverty that exists in the, in the state of California. So um, it's interesting too, this in uh, two days ago in the San Diego Union Tribune came out with an editorial and um, they said, well, now Gavin Newsom's the new um, governor of, um, of California. And oh my God, I mean, this Jerry Brown was a challenge enough, but Jerry Brown was at least pragmatic on some issues. He still had reasonably balanced budgets. He even though he approved the minimum wage increase, he at least agreed to do it in phases. Um, I don't think Gavin Newsom's going to be as pragmatic. I think he's going to be a lot more progressive, and there's going to be some dangers with that. But Gavin Newsom on the campaign trail claimed that he was going to build 
three and a half million new housing units. Now, obviously, he's not going to build it. The government's not going to build it. Private sector is going to build it. But the issue is, is that in order for there to be three and a half million new housing units built, which is necessary in the state of California, there's going to have to be a need to overcome nimbyism and overcome a lot of these aggressive regulatory rules that are in local uh, government. And so... Again, we'll see what happens. This is a legitimate crisis in California. So that's another reason why I'm supportive of this development. But finally, I'm generally supportive of the Poway Road specific plan just because it's progress. Like, oh my God, you know, we've been talking about this in Poway since I moved here in 96, that they were going to re- re- reform, um, you know, resurrect Poway Road. But it's also human civilizations progress. You know, we grow, economies grow, cities grow. I mean, imagine... A magnificent city like San Francisco having a rule that is that limited growth that prevented housing to be more than three stories tall. I mean, it sounds ludicrous. So I know we want to preserve the city and of the in the country here in Poway, um, and there are many many aspects of the city of in the country throughout Poway, housing ranches. Uh, uh, excuse me horse ranches, um, large acreage, lots, lots of trails. And that's what makes Poway beautiful and Poway special. But John Mullen, I thought, said it very well, that the Poway Road specific plan, and we're talking really between community and carriage road, but Poway Road in general, that's the city part of the city in the country. And so um, I'm, I'm generally supportive because it is progress. And I think we're going to remove a little bit of the blight that's on Poway Road. Uh, not we, and the property owners will end up doing it. We're going to have a lot more people that are going to move into town. And was there going to be more traffic? Yes. Is there going to be more congestion? Yes. But those are things that we're just going to need to work through. Um, and I'm confident that we'll be able to do that. So what else in these elections? What are the things that we learn? All these other problems in Poway, you know, the things that the Poway candidates or the challenger candidates made a big issue of, the Kalen Frank appointment, the swimming pool, you know, that was closed over the summer because a contractor had a bad concrete pour, the Espola Road project and it being, you know, so-called over budget. Let me talk about that in a minute. Originally, the city of Poway, and I don't remember the exact numbers, but they had allocated this much money for the Espola Road project to bury the electrical lines. And the bid came in here, and it was dramatically under budget. And when they got into the project, the contractor said, oops, we forgot something. And the city of Poway um, employee that approved the project, um, he, um, he missed that problem. And, and as a result, the cost of it went from here to here. It's still under budget but it was more than the original bid. Well, the city employee that approved that is no longer working for the city. I don't know if he was fired or if he resigned, he or she. My guess is they weren't fired. It's so hard to fire a government employee. Um, but I don't know, that's just my hunch. Um, but that that issue about the, the oops there, that wasn't enough to oust the incumbents. There were other controversies, you know, the water uh, billing problem at Palmerado and at the Sportsplex on the Poway Road uh, or the Poway, uh, commu- um, the Poway Business Park, the sportsplex of the Poway Business Park had a billing error with the water. Pomeroy Hospital had a billing error with the water. Um, the city had to go and try to save face and did a kind of um, a negotiated settlement. Was that mistake enough for the incumbents to lose? No. The senior center project, which by the way, a lot of people are concerned that when they rebuild the community center or the senior center during that time of building, 
the seniors are going to be displaced for about 18 to 24 months. What happens to them? Well, I'm, I'm reasonably confident something's going to happen. I mean, I know there's been talk of building some temporary housing or temporary facilities at that spot on Twin Peaks where they were talking about putting the veterans housing. Um, there's been talk, um, um, you know, that there might be some community organizations that'll step up. We'll see. But the threat of the potential that the seniors would not have somewhere to go, was that enough of a problem to oust the incumbents? It wasn't. So in the end, I think we found that a lot of the challenges um, that were put forth by the challengers just weren't enough. And that's a large, largely why the incumbents were successful. But let's keep going down my list here. I've got a few more things to chat about. The Poway Unified Race, what other things did we learn there? Well, I, we definitely learned that the establishment forces were highly aligned and they were very focused. Those I've already talked about the unions, the money, the political parties. The alternative candidates that were running just didn't have enough. I mean, you know, Michelle O'Connor Radcliffe is running against Stan Rodkin. It just, Stan just wasn't a, a strong enough candidate. Um, and we saw that in these other races, that the, 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 the candidates that came up short just didn't bring enough to the table. But I'm still, I still think it's a mystery why we saw two of the incumbents reelected. Um, because there's a, still a great deal of drama with the Poway School Board. I mean, we can look at the Poway City Council and yeah, there's some issues there. But the Poway City Council is light years more well-run than the Poway School Board is, or the city is light years well, more well-run than the school district is. It's not even close. So the city, uh, or excuse me, the Poway School District has had a series of deficit spending. Oh, never mind the fact there was the billion-dollar bond that's looming over us, and the payments are going to start in about 15 years. But there's um, a long string of Previous uh, budget deficits this year was projected to be a million dollar surplus has now become a deficit because of lower revenue forecasts. And the next two years are major deficit spending. But voters didn't seem to care. They still reelected the incumbents. There's There are First Amendment lawsuits that are being um, applied to, to, to two of the incumbents that won, to Zane and O'Connor Radcliffe, where they are, um, you know, suppressing um their constituents from from speaking to them um, through social media. So First Amendment lawsuits are there. Um, you know, there's been this three to two majority. Um, you know that has, has been filled with all sorts of drama. I mean, you could say that the sky is blue, and it probably would have been a three to two vote on that. Um, so there's just been this excessive amount of drama and lack of transparency. I mean, some of the school board. Uh, members aren't allowed to see financial invoices from vendors. Can you believe that? Um, so there's a lack of transparency. There's cloaking of information. Um, there, there is um, excessive drama um, on the school board. There's a long string of fiscal irresponsibility. Um, and yet the incumbents won. And I wondered why. And the only thing I could figure out is, is that it's a school board and it's for the children. And, and we want to make things Good for the kids, and so I my my cynical sense is is that you know they just want to try to have as much I guess establishment um, uh, calmness um, stability as possible, and then the the hope is is that they'll do the right thing. Well, I think the jury is out on that, but I often am question why the voters voted to reelect these incumbents in light of all these other issues. Um, I, they just clearly weren't enough. They just weren't enough uh, to make a difference. 
But I, I want to make a, a specific call on these particular issues. And I want to speak directly to Ginger Kuvret. Um, Ginger, you came in and we had a wonderful podcast conversation. I learned a great deal about you. Very impressive. Your track record, the volunteer activities you've done in the city, a lot of your ideas for the innovation with vocational uh, vocational studies. And I mean, we went through a lot of things together. And I think you're going to be a great uh, school board member. I do think that um, I can assume that you're going to be more aligned with TJ and Michelle and Darsh than you probably will be aligned with Kimberly Beatty. That's my assumption. So I am pleading with you to bring, and we talked about this in our podcast, to bring with you the knowledge that you have as the former chairman of the Poway Budget Review Committee and bring that successful um, process, that disciplined financial rigor, that transparent open book process that invites the community in to review the numbers and and has that, I guess, transparent process that builds trust and ultimately delivers balanced budgets, surpluses that are used for rainy days, and deploying those surpluses in reserve for for targeted high-priority initiatives. Um, I'm pleading with you to please bring that discipline to the Poway Unified School District. It is so desperately needed. Um, and, and Ginger, um, I already have great respect for you. And if you're able to pull this off, my respect for you will go even higher. So that's my plea to you. Um, lastly, I just want to rattle off a few things. I just kind of want to talk about some of the things that I'm excited about. Um, number one, uh, I'm excited about this podcast. And and I'm in the middle of doing this sort of phase two of the podcast where I'm trying to broaden my conversation beyond local politics. I want to get into a lot of other issues like, you know, sports and business and and history and and so let's let's talk a little bit about sports right now. So I'm excited about the college basketball season. You know the San Diego State Aztecs are getting going and they're already one and zero. They just beat uh, Arkansas Pine Bluff earlier this year. Their team is going to be a lot of fun to watch. I mean, of their 11 scholarship players, eight of them are freshmen or sophomores. So they're a young team. They're an extraordinarily talented team. Um, they've got a, a guy on the team, Jalen McDaniel's, who's a potential NBA. Uh, draft pick, a you know, lottery pick. He could very easily go in the draft. Um, a lot of the young guys are intriguing. You know, they've got a lot of um, uh, players that um, are, are either directly or are indirectly from Africa. So there's going to be some cultural issues on the team, which I think is going to be kind of fun as we follow these players. So I'm fascinated. Uh, you know, the Aztecs have been to the NCAA tournament seven of the last nine years, and I'm hoping that string continues. So um, I'm hoping to go to some games. I usually go to a handful of games. They've announced this package for $99, and you get to go to five games. And I know two of them are Mountain West games, and one of them is against New Mexico. And that's another big Mountain West team. And, and by the way, that's where my son goes to school. And so let's talk about their teams. So my daughter, Shannon, is a senior at Cal Poly San Luis Obispo, and, and her team, the Mustangs, they're in the Big West. So I'm following them, rooting for them, and I'm also following the New Mexico Lobos, and they're in the same conference with San Diego State, and, and my son Trevor is a freshman at New Mexico. So it'd be kind of fun to, you know, wear the colors for my kid's school, and, and you know, as I've always had to adopt um, college basketball teams because I went to UC San Diego. And when I went to school there in the eighties, they were division three. And then over the last, I don't know, 10, 20 years, they've been D two, but now they're finally going D one. So in July of 2020, 
they're going to officially UC San Diego will be in the in the and no the Big West Conference with Cal uh, Poly San Luis Obispo and a whole bunch of other UCs and Cal State schools, and um, we'll be legit UCSD man. We're going to be D one and Final Four baby Tritons. So I'm looking forward to that. That's going to be a lot of fun. So college basketball, I'm a huge fan, and I'm really excited that it's getting started. Um, I'm excited that my kids are coming home for Thanksgiving. And so um, Shannon is going to be coming back. She's got the whole week off. Um, Trevor only has the Thursday, Friday, and the weekends. So we'll only see him a little bit. But I'm really looking forward to them coming home and spending some time, the four of us. And um, you know, I know we're going to do the, the turkey trot, which is the Father Joe. Um, I think it's like a 5K, 10K. It's down at Balboa Park. We've done the last couple of years. Shannon and Trevor, they're athletes. They run it. Kim and I and, and our dog, Nona, we take a stroll and have a fun time. But it's a good family outing. So we'll do that again on Thanksgiving. So looking forward to doing that with the kids. Um, but what else am I excited about? I, yeah, I said I'm excited about this podcast. And and I'm uh, you can't see it, but off the camera, I've got some uh, a new set design that I'm working on. We've got some sort of like leather lounge chairs, coffee tables. So the interviews are going to be in a more relaxing um, environment rather than over this wooden table. You know, we were kind of playing battleship. Um, so I'm going to have, you know, much more of a uh, relaxing, kind of uh, comforting um, area where we're going to have um, our guests here for our interviews. Um, I've also set up a Patreon page. So if you feel so inclined that you would like to donate money to the John Riley Project, um, you can go to our website at johnreillyproject.com. There on the menu is a donate button, and it'll take you to our Patreon page where you can donate as little as $2 a month. And I'm going to be using that money for a number of re- number of things, number one, I want to get some help uh, that'll help me make the production quality of this a lot more professional. I'm going to be investing in more technology, but I'm also going to have um, special, I guess, um, behind the scenes um, um, opportunities for those people that do choose to donate, and we'll do some live streams just for the donors. We'll do some Q and A, and we'll we'll have some interesting fun there. But if you want to get involved in the community and follow what we're doing, you can. Uh, donate to the project. Um, you can also go to our website at johnreillyproject.com. And at the bottom, there's an opportunity to sign up on our email list. So feel free to do that as well. Um, and then a big shout out to Gino Kang. Gino is a, one of my uh, college friends, and he was the first donor uh, to the John Riley Project on the Patreon page. And and he did the gold donation, $10 a month. Thank you, Gino. I really appreciate your friendship and your support. I greatly appreciate it. You're a good friend. Um, I'm really excited also about the San Diego Padres and their off season. I mean, there's a lot of fascinating things that are going to be happening here. Um, AJ Preller, the general manager, um, he's got some big decisions to make. And I think we're really at one of these inflection points where I'm hopeful that the Padres are going to become competitive again. Um, so Right now, there are probably, I don't know, 48 guys that are on the major league roster or that are in the minor leagues that need to be whittled down to the 40-man roster. You know, as this, you know, hot talent lava, this young prospect base starts growing, once they serve a certain period of time in the minors, they become eligible for the, for the, um, excuse me, um, they become eligible for the, and what is it called? The rule five draft where they can be cherry picked out of our organization by other teams. So we don't want that to happen. So um, AJ is going to have to do some creative things. And I'm hopeful that he can do some package deals where he can take two or three players, maybe let's say 
a Hunter Renfro and a minor league pitcher and package them for a better major league pitcher. You know, so some of these kinds of package deals, two for one, three for one, that can relieve the pressure of these 48 guys and whittling it down to 40. They're going to also have to make some decisions to cut loose certain players. So I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, certainly I don't expect Jose Perella to come back. I think Carlos Asuaje, the jury's out on him. Uh, Corey Spangenberg, you know, um, there's a number of pitchers that I think probably are not coming back or will just be sort of permanent AAA fixtures. Um, like Brett Kennedy, I think might be in that can in that in that box. So again, a lot of intriguing decisions. And then there's the whole saga of Will Myers. Uh, what are they going to do with him? Is he going to be able to develop into the third baseman of the future? Um, he's going to have a whole off season to work on it. He's a great athlete. Can he do it? Probably not. I mean, I, I'd love for him to be able to do it. I think it'd be a wonderful story, and it'd be a great way to get his bat in the lineup. But is it enough? Is he going to be able to be a major league caliber player at the hot corner? That's a challenging position. I'm not sure if he's going to be able to pull it off. And if he can't, then now suddenly we have a logjam of corner outfielders because there's him, there's Myers, there's Renfro, there's Framil Reyes. So this goes back to Preller. He's got some moves to make. So during this offseason, it's going to be you know chess pieces on a chessboard, and I think we're going to finally start seeing a lot of that hot talent lava begin bubbling up to the surface. They're clearing space now for Fernando Tatis Jr. at shortstop, and he'll probably either start the season or shortly thereafter be on the roster. Luis Arias at second base. I mean, I think there's hope. There really is hope. And so I'm looking forward to that. So um, I'm I'm inviting anyone that would like to be a guest here on the John Riley Project. Maybe you're a super fan. Maybe you're a baseball coach or player and you have some thoughts on the Padres, Major League Baseball, maybe even on our local baseball community here in Poway. I invite you to come on and we'll sit down and we'll have a great conversation and talk about it. Um, I'm really excited about the NBA, and you know, I'm a longtime Warriors fan. I'm a native San Franciscan. Went to the Warriors games a lot as a kid, and you know they won the NBA championship when I was 10 years old. But we went through like 30, 35 years of sheer misery, um, and now the Warriors are great again. And you know they've been a lot of fun to watch these past few years. But I, I can't believe I'm about to say this, but I, I'm actually kind of rooting for the Lakers too. Um, you know, with LeBron James coming over and I'm, I've always been a fan of LeBron and my son, Trevor is a huge fan of LeBron. I mean, he's a good guy, a good soul. And, um, you know, he's working with all these young players and the Lakers are suddenly, you know, sort of must see TV. Um, so they're a lot of fun to watch. So I'm really enjoying the, um, the NBA starting. Um, what else I'm excited about? Um, I don't know if you follow any other podcasts, but Scott Kaplan, um, did a podcast recently. Um, you know, he's the host of on the Mighty 1090 Sports uh, Radio, uh, the Scott and BR show, him and Billy Ray Smith do a show. But Scott has his own solo podcast, and he had a great conversation with San Diego State head coach or retired head coach, Steve Fisher. And they spoke at length about fatherhood, and I loved it. Um, Steve Fisher spoke a lot about his son, Mark, who is in his 40s, who is an assistant coach for the Aztecs. But, you know, he is, uh, he suffers from ALS, from Lou Gehrig's disease. And it was a, you know, it came on as an adult and it, he traced, you know, the, the, the history of that, you know, and how Marcus struggled with ALS and what Steve did as a father, uh, supporting his son and his son's family. Um, but it was also interesting to hear 
um, Steve Fisher talk about his own father and some of the, the rules that were, he, that were instilled by his father. And one of the big ones he said, which resonates with me, is never be a slave to a paycheck. You know, always do what you love. And those are wonderful words. And, and those are things that I am personally always struggling with with myself. And, um, and I think if you can do what you love and earn a great living doing it, you know, all power to you. Steve Fisher was able to do that. And if every person can find their way doing it, that's the way they should live their life. That's a wonderful way to do it. So I was nice to hear that message. And then meanwhile, you know, Scott Kaplan, his son, Justin, is the same age as my son, Trevor. So we would sometimes cross paths with the Kaplans, particularly like when Poway would play Torrey Pines in baseball games. Now, I can't say I'm a friend of Scott Kaplan or I really even know him. Um, just had a few shout outs with him over Twitter. But I like him. He's a good guy. And he spoke a lot about his fatherhood and, and the things that you know he does with his son, Justin. And I think it's, it was wonderful. It was a wonderful conversation. So I invite you to seek that out, um, Scott Kaplan's solo podcast, and pick the Steve Fisher episode. It was wonderful. Um, I'm excited about Breaking Bad. They're coming out with a movie, and um, it looks like they're, they're only giving us some hints. I think we know that Vince Gilligan is going to be writing it, is going to be producing it, and probably directing it. Um, we don't know if it's TV or if it's um, uh, going to be in the theaters, but it's just awesome. I mean, because Breaking Bad was fantastic. I'm a big Better Call Saul guy. I mean, John Ryan and I talked at length about this and and about Gus Fring, and I think Gus is up here in my bobblehead collection. Um, but I'm a big fan of it, and I'm really looking forward to the show. The hints that I'm hearing is that it's going to be about Jesse and Jesse Pinkman and his adventures, you know, after the conclusion of Breaking Bad. Because I remember that last episode, um, you know, he was in the car and he, that was the car with the machine gun in the back, I think. And he went crashing through that uh, chain link fence and he was, he was free. Um, but, um, you know, what's going to happen to Jesse? So I think that's what this Breaking Bad movie is going to be about. Who knows if they're going to be the old characters, new characters, same actors. I have no idea, but I'm loving it. And on a similar note, I'm loving what they're doing with The Walking Dead. And uh, it's Sunday night, so I, I think there's a new episode tonight. I'm not sure. But last Sunday was Rick Grimes' last episode. And they've recently announced they're going to be, they made some feature movies for Rick Grimes. But we had always assumed that Rick was going to die in that last Walking Dead episode. And it turned out that he was whisked away on a helicopter to some far um, land far away. It was almost like, remember that TV show Lost that was on about 10 years ago? It kind of felt like that. So now we know Rick Grimes is alive. He's going to live. And I guess these feature films that they're going to do for him might be a continuation of the Rick Grimes character. And if that's the case, fantastic. So I'm looking forward to that. Um, but I think the final thing that I'm really excited about, and maybe you are too, is that the election season is over. It's over. So all of the crazy um, hyperbole, partisanship, hysteria is now going to be moved down to normal levels of hyperbole, partisanship, and hysteria. I mean, some of the things that were coming out in the, um, the week leading up to the midterm election, and I'm not talking just in Poway, but nationally, which is nuts. Um, and, you know, this business with the caravan coming up from Mexico and, and, and then the business about, you know, people saying that, you know, the Republicans are going to get rid of uh, Social Security and, and Medicare. And I mean, there was just outrageous things being said that were trying to 
make the the, the uh, political race in the in the final moments even more emotional and more heated. So I'm glad the temperature on that's going down, but we're still seeing nuttiness. And I even talked about President Trump and you know World War One and and you know Europe and the rain and all that. I mean, it's just it's insane. And then the fires in California and, and some of Trump's comments there. We can go off on a giant tangent there, but we won't. But I'm happy the election process is over. And Kevin Juza, I'll say this to you. I love you. I think you ran a great campaign. Um, I'm really happy that I will no longer be seeing your Facebook videos that are on my newsfeed many times every day. You had great support from the teachers that funded that, I'm sure. And we got to meet all of your supporters. We got to meet your family members. It was fantastic. But I was just always amazed at how frequently you appeared in my newsfeed. So maybe that's part of the Facebook algorithm because I'm a local politics nerd and that's why they were feeding it to me. But um, I'm, I'm really happy that I'm no longer going to be seeing that any longer. So Kevin, maybe you can come in and we can meet face to face and we'll talk about your campaign. But that's all I have to say. I've been going now for well over an hour, and this concludes the 21st episode of the John Riley Project, and we'll be back sometime soon. Thank you.